Well, we have made it back to Romans. We're back there. Today we are in Romans chapter 8. Listen, before we do that, I need to say this worship team uh, at, at the church I used to be at before I came to Tyler, the church I used to pastor, Unity Baptist Church, we had one of our dear, my dear sister who was, who is still one of the, and she's been here, she sung here, I believe, Renee Tucker, who used to tell me, uh, and, 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 you know, I didn't let it go to my head, but she would say, um, Pastor, you're getting gooder and gooder. <laughs> so I want to say to Michael and this team, to Michael and this team, in the words of Renee Tucker, <laughs> y'all are just getting gooder and gooder. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So thank you. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Would you stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 from the pen of the Apostle Paul, we find the following words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, the, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, are, you however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Amen. You may be seated. From this passage of scripture from Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 11. Uh, today I want to lift this theme, the thrill of victory. The thrill of victory. Uh, since we took a brief pause from the book of Romans uh, for a few weeks for Advent, let's, if you'd allow me to, let's have a bit of review. By way of review and uh, looking back over what we've already talked about in this book of Romans, thus far, our journey through Romans, through the epistle, 
Paul's epistle to the Romans has left us with some rather interesting conclusions. From chapter 1 through 3, we learn that all men are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. From chapters 4 and 5, we learn that true righteousness comes through faith and not through works. From chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, we learn that in Christ we are dead to sin. And because we died with him and are married to him, that we are no longer married to the law. And if Satan, we re remember I reminded you that if Satan tries to redraft you into your old life, that you can show him the marriage agreement that says that you are now married to Christ. Then we arrived a few weeks ago at Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. And when we arrived there a few weeks ago, I shared with you uh, that most of us, if we are truthful, could relate to the post-salvation, mid-sanctification struggles that Paul revealed about himself as he dealt with the battle of two natures. Remember I told you there were two in one. Paul is struggling with this, and I told you that it was likely that we couldn't relate to Paul in some other instances in his life, but certainly we could relate to this Paul in Romans chapter 7. Uh, those of you that were here will recall that I gave you a bit of a preview a few weeks ago when I said that it would have been nice if Paul would have just taken us from chapter 7 verse 6 to chapter 8 verse 1 and just skipped the other part of chapter 7. But I reminded you that that's not reality. Reality is that all of us have and can relate to the struggle that Paul describes at the end of chapter 7. And I said a few weeks ago that in order to properly appreciate the thrill of victory that will come in chapter 8, we must be honest about the agony of defeat that is chapter 7. Some of you, like me, have been around long enough to remember where that reference and imagery comes from. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, or for those of you who would like a reminder of where that comes from, take a look at this clip. Now, let me pause it for a minute. Let me say this. This is not, do we have sound? There you go. This is not the best quality, but this is the only one that I could find that fit, because there are many of these intros, but this is the only one I could find that fit what I wanted, so I just, just this is not Cody's fault. This is my fault for the quality. Take a look at this clip. We got to have sound. That's, if you don't have the sound, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same no? Okay. All right. It's okay. Okay, if we did have sound. <laughs> Cody, I'm just, you just killed my whole sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, if we did, <laughs> if we did have sound. So, all right. So, let's, here's the thing. A lot of you will remember that this clip is from the wide, ABC's Wide World of Sports. 
that ran from 1961 to 1989. I'm sorry, 1998, right? And if you remember that, or if you don't, I'll remind you that there were many intros to the wide world of sports that ran on Saturday afternoons for, those, for that span of time. It was narrated and hosted by Jim McKay. And Jim McKay, in the intro, if you could have heard the sound, would say, uh, he would talk about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. This skier that you see in the clip became famous, not in a good way, but he became famous and known for his tragic fall that accompanied McKay's intro when he talked about the agony of defeat. Agony of defeat. This 30-second, okay. Amen. Thank you, Cody. You're the man. You're the man. You saved me. <laughs> this is Jim McKay, right? He's, he, he, he get, it's familiar to a lot of us. He, he talks about the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. This 30-second clip and the words that are spoken by McKay in this clip are actually an accurate parable and depiction of life. Doesn't it fit what life is? Doesn't it describe and, and accurately portray what life is? Because the feelings of defeat in life are real and they're agonizing. While times of victory are thrilling, exuberant, and passionately pursued. Like the weightlifter at the end who, who exuberantly and thrillingly lifts the weight in an act of victory saying, I have defeated these weights. It is a time of thrill. It's a time of exuberance. And most of us, if not all of us, passionately pursue the thrill of victory. But there's a question. The question is, how do we ensure that the pitfalls are the chapter sevens of life? Even in the midst of those, we can still experience the thrill of victory. How do, we, how do we ensure that even in those times, even in the pitfalls, even in the falling downs, even in the crashes, even in the chapter sevens of life, how are we able, how can we ensure that we can still enjoy, even in those times, the thrill of victory. That thrill is the confidence in knowing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that even when I'm weak, I'm still strong. Even when it appears that I've lost, I'm still winning. How can we ensure that we experience that? Well, Paul starts his answer to that question in chapter 7, verse 25, and he completes his answer answer. In chapter 8, 
Romans chapter 8. We finally arrived there. We've been looking forward to arriving at Romans chapter 8. Why have we been so excited? Maybe you haven't been, but I've been excited about finally getting to chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8 has been described as one of the most celebrated and significant chapters in all of the Bible. It is by far my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. I love all of it, but I could just rest in Romans chapter 8. I could just read it every day. It's so full of just great stuff. Derek Thomas, in his book, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home, says of Romans chapter 8, no chapter of Scripture reaches the same sustained levels or covers covers the same ground as Romans chapter 8. It is a description, Thomas says, of the Christian life from death to life, from justification to glorification, from trial and suffering to the peace and tranquility of the new heaven and the new earth. It contains, Thomas says, exhortations to persevere as well as reassurances of God's preservation of his people. And no chapter, Thomas reminds us, has been cited more than this one in expounding the application of redemption in the life of an individual. In short, he says, Romans 8 gives us a picture of salvation in its completeness. Romans 8 is a treasured work, a treasured part of Paul's letter to the Romans. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul continues the thought from chapter 7, verse 25. He continues the thought that I shared with you a few weeks ago. That thought is that sin is no match for our Savior. Sin, say that again, is no match for our Savior. He continues this thought in Romans chapter 8. Then he adds to that thought because he proceeds to build on this victory plan by prescribing a spirit-led and a spirit-filled life in order to achieve and maintain a victorious existence. He builds on it, Brother Kimmy, he says in 725, it's Jesus. He builds on it in Romans chapter 8 by saying, uh, also, there's another element to it, and that is a spirit-led and a spirit-filled life. It is critical, it is vital to be able to experience a victorious existence that we be led by and filled with the Spirit. While chapter 7 verses 14 through 25 is I-centric, it's dominated, those verses are dominated by I. Paul talks about I throughout all of those verses. In fact, I appears 26 times in those 12 verses at the end of chapter 7. Paul illustrates this and highlights I because of the fact that uh, of the inadequacy of I. I is 
inadequate. I am not able. I am, am no match. 7, 14 through 25 is I-centric. But chapter 8 is not I-centric. Chapter 8 is spirit-centric. The Holy Spirit, without a doubt, is the preeminent focus of Romans chapter 8. No, it's true because spirit, the word spirit, appears 18 times in Romans chapter 8. And only seven times, seven other times in the, in the remainder of the book of Romans. For the most part, we find an ov the overwhelming use of and attention to the spirit is here by Paul in this letter to the Romans. We find here in Romans chapter 8. This chapter, Romans chapter 8, contains the most comprehensive lesson, the most comprehensive study of the Holy Spirit in the entire book of Romans. It's right here in chapter 8. So, the prevailing question from 724 is still and has, it's still the same. The prevailing question is still the same, but it has an addition. There's an addition to the question that Paul raises in 724, but that question is still, still on the table. Question is, who will deliver me from this body of death? The addition to that question is this, who will empower me to walk in victory? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? And at the same time, who will empower me to walk uh, uh, constantly in victory, even when it appears that I'm losing? Who will empower me? Who will equip me, Martha, to still enjoy the thrill of victory? Who is it? Uh, verses 1 through 11 can be divided into two sections each of which provides a detailed answer to the questions at hand. First answer is, um, who shall deliver me? Right, first question, who shall deliver me from the body of this, this death? Answer to that is a past tense answer. Because first part, first section of 1 through 11, we'll look at what Christ did. That's past tense. That answers the first question. Second thing that we'll find in this passage is present tense. It helps us answer, it helps us answer the other part of that question, and that is what the Spirit does. It's present tense. So first thing we're going to look at is the work of Christ, what Christ did. I think we'll see it in this passage of Scripture, in this text, verses 1 through 3. What did Christ do? Past tense. Uh, what was his work that impacts us answering, affects us answering this question, who shall deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? First thing I believe we'll see from the text that Christ did is that he removed the penalty. He removed the penalty. Look at verse 1. It's in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He removed the penalty. No condemnation. No punishment. No penalty. When we come to Jesus by faith, we are delivered from the threat 
of divine retribution. And we are delivered from even the possibility of hell. Listen, if you're a believer, there should be no doubt in your mind. Hell is not on the, on the, on the agenda anymore, right? If somebody asks you, uh, are you, so it's not, it's not arrogant, right? It's not arrogance, it's confidence. If someone asks you, are you going to heaven? Listen, if you ask me, I'm going to tell you with boldness, with my chest stuck out, and with all the confidence that I have that I know my name. I need some help today. I know my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and I know that there's a mansion over there for me, over in glory. I know because Jesus reminded me that he has gone to prepare a place, not maybe for me, but for me, that where he is, there I will be also because he took away the condemnation. There's no longer any doubt in my mind. There is no longer even a possibility of sin. Uh, Paul does not say, though, that there is no reason for condemnation because all of us deserve it. If Paul, in fact, if Paul had said that, he would be telling a lie. He would be writing an untruth. If he said that there is no, he didn't say that there is therefore no reason for, con for condemnation. Why? Because all of us are guilty. He didn't say there's not a reason. He did not say that uh, because there's ample reason for condemnation. But the fact of the matter is, is that the case against us has been dismissed. The case against us has been dismissed. And the question arises, how was it and is it dismissed. It's in the text, the last three words, in Christ Jesus. That's how, in Christ Jesus. What, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean in, in Christ Jesus? Uh, in Christ Jesus is the only, the one and only condition attached to the promise we just read. The promise is that there's now no condemnation. The one and only condition is that you must be in Christ Jesus. And it refers to those who have confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. If that is you, it fits. If that is you, the case has been dismissed. For those that do believe that, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is now no punishment. There's now no condemnation. John 336 says it this way. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That means if we fit that, we've been released. We've been, the case has been dropped. It's, we've been pardoned, Right? So, so first thing, Jesus, the work of Christ, what did Christ do? He removed the penalty of sin in verse 1. Secondly, in verse 2, he provided for us true freedom. He provided true freedom. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He provided true freedom. In Christ we are free from the guilt and the power of sin, from 
the, the, the overwhelming uh, uh, weight of the law and the dominion of the flesh. In Christ and by the power of his spirit, we are truly delivered from bondage. We've been set free. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. He set us free. John 8.36 says this, So if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You know what indeed freedom is? It means that nobody can override that freedom. It means that nobody can overturn the case. It means that an appeals court can't bring it up and say, it means that there is no double jeopardy. Amen, somebody. When, you, when your case has been dismissed and you've been not found not guilty, but you've been granted the status of being not guilty, not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did, it's settled. Nobody can take that freedom away. Who the Son says free is free indeed. He removed the penalty. He provided freedom, but then also in verse 3, he fulfilled the law and took our place. He fulfilled the law. And Paul writes, not only did he fulfill the law, but he took our place. Here's what verse 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Christ did what the law was unable to do. He provided for us a pathway to righteousness, a pathway to righteousness for mankind. The law couldn't do it, but Christ did it. This was accomplished through propitiation. Propitiation, a fancy word, it simply means this. God, because of his great love, accepts the blood of Christ as the complete and satisfying sacrifice for all human sin, providing a pathway to reconciliation. We couldn't get there aside from propitiation. If it had not been for that, if it, if it had not been for the substitution that happened on our behalf, if Christ had not died for us, we would not have been able to be reconciled. He took our place. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 3, 25 and 26 when he says this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's propitiation. It's how he took our place. It's how the law was fulfilled. But propitiation happens only because of kenosis. It's a Greek word. Kenosis means emptying. It means emptying. And in, in, in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, here's what Paul writes about this word kenosis. He says, but he talking about Christ. He said, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. 
it is kenosis. He emptied himself by veiling his glory. He emptied himself by taking on a true but sinless human nature. He emptied himself by voluntarily submitting to the will of the Father. Because of that, he made a way for us. He fulfilled the law. He took our place. So the question is, what did Christ do? The question is, what, what, what was the work of Christ? The work of Christ, what did he do? Past tense. Those are the things he did. He took our place. He fulfilled the law. He gave us freedom, right? He took away the penalty, the punishment, the condemnation. So then, if that's the case, what about what's next? If that's past tense, what happens right now? What do we do? We, 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 we hold on to what Jesus did. We, we, we love the fact that he paid the price, that he took our place. But how are we allowed to and enabled to walk in victory and, and realize the thrill of that victory in 2020? How do we do it? Well, Paul helps us with it in verses 4 through 11. Because in verses 4 through 11, he transitions from past tense to present tense. And here's what happens in 4 through 11. He says, he talks about the work of the Spirit and what the Spirit does right now. What the Spirit does right now. Um, first, before we get into it, let's talk about the importance and impact of the Spirit. Quest, first question is this, who is the Spirit? We got to know that. Who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Not, first of all, first thing is, is who he's not, right? What he's not. Not some vague force. Not a cosmic magician, not a genie in the bottle, not an it. He's not an it. He is a he, right? Uh, the Greek word is parakletos, one called alongside to help. He is a comforter. He is a person. He's a person. Here's what scripture reminds us about it. Jesus says this in John 14. John says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. You know what that means? It means that uh, while Jesus was here, he was the helper. Jesus said, I'm getting ready to leave you. Remember what he said at the beginning of 14? I'm going to prepare a place. He says, I'm leaving you, but, and, and so as long as I'm with you, I'm the comforter, I'm the helper, but I'm leaving you, and I'm praying that the Father would send you not a helper, but another helper, because you're going to need some help. <laughs> amen, somebody. If you couldn't say amen all morning, you should have said amen right there. You're going to need, I need some help. I need a comforter, and here's what he says. He says, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees, uh, listen, he doesn't say because it neither sees it, because it neither sees him. He's a person, nor knows him. He's a person. You know him, a person, for he, a person, dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Through him. He's a person. You need to understand that. He's a person. He's a person. He's personal. He is a person. Not only is he a person, he's also God. He is deity. He is 
God. He is the third person of the eternal trinity, one with the Father and with the Son. Uh, among some other evidences of this is this. His name appears as equal with the Father and the Son in the formula for baptism. And in, the same, and in some of the New Testament prayers, I'll give you a couple examples. Matthew 28, 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, excuse me, and of the Holy Spirit. He's right there in line, third person of the Trinity. And then this prayer that we often use as a doxology, as a benediction, he's included in that. Here's what Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God doesn't stop there. He continues, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. I don't know about you, but I need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be with me. Listen, I heard a long time ago a, de a definition of fellowship. You've likely heard it before, but I want to share it with you anyway. I heard a long time ago fellowship means two fellows in the same ship. And I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit to be in the ship with me. Because it's dangerous out here on these waters. And I need a navigator to help guide me and lead me. I need to be able to walk with him and talk with him. I need to hear from him. I need to be able to go to him in my times of distress. When I'm skiing down the mountain and I find myself falling and crashing, I need to be able to say, Father, I stretch my hands to thee. There's no other help I know. If thou withdraw thyself from me, where shall I go? He is my comforter and my helper. He is God. Not only is he God, uh, what does he do? What, what, what does he do right now? What, what does the Spirit do? Here's one thing that he does that's in the text. He indwells every believer permanently at the instant of salvation. He indwells every, let, let's do away with the myth, right? It happens instantly. The minute you surrender. You are at that moment indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul proves it. He talks about it in verse 9 of our text. He says this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Talking to saved folks. In fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. He dwells in you. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. It means that if it didn't happen instantly, you wouldn't belong to him. But because it happens instantaneously, John, it means that at that very moment, you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs. He dwells on the inside of us. He indwells us not just instantly, but he indwells us permanently. He indwells us permanently. There's no one or nothing that can take him out. He's always in there, Dorothea. He's always in me now. Whether or not I listen and obey him, uh, that's a different story. But because I fell down on my knees and stretched my hands to God and said, I surrender all to you, all to you I owe, because of that, he has taken up permanent 
residence. And nothing you can do, nothing I can do, nothing the enemy can do can change that. He's always there. He indwells us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 helps us to prove it as well. It says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit uh, within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. It goes on to say you've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself because there is someone, not an it. There's a person on the inside. He indwells us, every believer, permanently. The other thing that he does in the text is he enables. It's in verse 4. He enables us. In order, Paul says, in order, in verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The spirit enables the believer to do that which the law required. And I know that we think we're not under the requirements of the law, but Paul, remember, says in 712 that the law is not bad, but rather it's righteous and it's good. He says that if we were able to, it would be good if we could follow it, right? But we're not able to by ourselves. But because we have the Spirit dwelling on the inside of us, he enables us to do those things which please God. He enables us, verse 4 says. And then in verses 5 through 8, I'm reminded of something else the Spirit does. He provides us with the ideal mindset. Because left to our own thoughts, we'll choose the wrong mindset every time. Every time, Sam, we'll choose the wrong mindset if we're left to ourselves. But the Spirit provides all of us with the ideal, with with the optimal, with, with, with God's ideal for us. What our thoughts ought to be, right? Here's what Paul says. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. That's what he says. What, 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 what does he mean by the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit? Right? How do we differentiate? Well, it's easy because he gives us a couple of lists. Over in Galatians, you're familiar with where he, how he, where, what he says. He gives us these lists in Galatians chapter 5 that help us to understand what the things of the flesh are and the things of the spirit. Now, I'll say to you that this list, this first list is likely not comprehensive because there are some other things that he probably could have threw in, <laughs> right? But in the interest of time and space, he probably just said, just, just start with these. <laughs> if you start here, Right, it's a good place to start. So here's what he says. These are the things of the flesh. He said, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, the list goes on, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. Uh, that covers a lot, but it doesn't cover everything. But he says, start there. Those are some of the things of the flesh that we should not set our minds on. He says, of which I tell you before, uh, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things the Spirit says don't set your mind on. But the question has to come then, what should we think about? (laughs) What should we set our minds on? What, what, what 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 is this ideal mindset 
that the Spirit leads us to? Well, it follows that, same, that passage in Galatians 5, and we know it as the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so in Galatians 5, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Set your mind on that. What's love? Love is an attitude that moves us to put God and others ahead of ourselves. A spirit that compels us to give, to serve, and to forgive. He says, set your mind on joy. What is joy? It's the spirit of gladness rooted in our faith, expressed through song. That's the reason why songs are so important. And accompanied by an optimistic spirit. That's what joy is. Joy is not pessimistic. You ever been around somebody that's always see the downside of things? Right? Just always negative. That, that, my brothers and sisters, is not joy. It's not what the Spirit leads us to set our minds on because joy leads us to think victoriously and optimistic. Even in the midst of pitfalls in chapter 7, the Spirit says, set your mind on joy. Not only that, but set your mind on peace. What is peace? Peace is inner serenity derived from God and based on the reality of our peace with God through Christ's sacrifice. It's not, somebody reminded me, I preached a sermon here a few months ago, somebody reminded me, talking about peace, somebody reminded me, you know, peace is not the absence of disturbance and trouble. It's not that. That's not what peace is. Peace is the ability to navigate and to deal with it when it comes, Right? Because, listen, I can, I can have peace even when I'm falling. I can have peace even when you're attacking me. I can have peace even when the enemy is hot on my trail. Peace is not the absence of it. Peace is the ability to endure it and to still be positive in the face of it. Then he says, think on this, patience or long-suffering. Set your mind on Patience, a long-suffering. What is that? Patience. It's, 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 it's patience in the midst of difficult circumstances and, I, and in our relationships with difficult people. Somebody should have said amen right there. Sometimes it takes patience. <clears throat> it takes patience to deal with difficult people. <laughs> uh, he says not only that, not only long-suffering and patience, but set your mind on the, the Spirit says, ideally, kindness. What's kindness? Practicing the golden rule for treating others the way you expect them to treat you. That's what kindness is. He says, set your mind on goodness. What's goodness? Open, honest, pure, and generous behavior. Set your mind on that. He says, set your mind on faithfulness. What is that? We can be trusted and depended on in all our relationships. That's what faithfulness is. Can you be trusted? Can you be depended on in all of your relationships? Can everybody that has a relationship with you, including number one, God, trust you to be dependable? Right? Can, can God trust you to do that? Can he trust you to be faithful? Can I trust you to be faithful in, in my relationship with you? Then he says, set it on gentleness. Gentleness is a tenderness of spirit that enables us to discipline others properly, because sometimes we need to do that. We can't remove discipline from the equation, but it needs to be done properly. To endure persecution graciously, so it's often easy for us to, to dish out discipline, but we don't know how to take it, <laughs> right? 
So we need to learn how to accept uh, even persecution or discipline with grace. That's what gentleness is. Uh, and to witness to others with sensitivity so that when we're sharing Christ, we're not abusive or abrasive, but we do it with sensitivity. And then lastly, he says, ideally, self-control. What is self-control? What is self-control? Our temperance. The quality that gives us control over desires, especially those that relate to the body. So we talk about what the Spirit does right now. He provides us with this ideal mindset. He enables us in verse 4. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 11, he gives life. He gives life. Look at 9 through 11, and you'll find all throughout 9 through 11, Paul references life and the fact that life is given and the, the benefit of life being given and the fact that we are dead and we need to be resurrected. The fact, the fact that we are lifeless and we need life to be pumped into us. Paul says the spirit gives life. Uh, as Paul says in 724, this body of death he talks about in 724. Our bodies are dead because of sin. And our only hope is the same life-giving spirit that raised Jesus from the grave. It is the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in 9 through 11, and then we're going to stop. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, but if Christ is in you, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also, I love the King James version of this, King James says, quicken your mortal bodies, will breathe life into what's dead. And I tell you this, in this world, we need life to be breathed into us. I'm reminded of this story, illustration of scuba divers. Scuba divers enter the water with tanks on their backs. These tanks contain oxygen. The purpose of these tanks strapped to their backs is so that they can make, they can make it in a foreign world. Water is not their natural habitat. It's not the normal place for them to live. So in order for them to survive in this foreign world of water, they need to be connected to a life source from their real world. How many scuba divers I have in here? Y'all can relate. I've never been brave enough to try it. One day. In order for them to make it in that world down below, they need air from this world up above. In other words, if they get disconnected from the air from this world, they won't last long in that world. Their connectedness is the key to their survival because they weren't meant to live in water. You weren't meant to live in water. You need to be connected to something to survive. 
So they borrow from this world in order to live in that world. That life source in the life of the Christian is the Holy Spirit. God has given the Christian a life source between this world to the Christian that is foreign territory in order to live here and make it. You need to be connected to a life source from your real world. That is from heaven. If you get disconnected from the life source from your real world, you won't make it in this world as a Christ follower. You'll be gasping for air that this world doesn't have to offer because it's foreign territory. This life comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's how we are able to live. How do we maintain the thrill of victory? It only happens through that source known as the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for Romans 8. Thank you for victory. We praise you, Lord, for your word. For your, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. Glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask if the brothers would come and help with communion. It is Communion Sunday. So I'm going to ask if you would come and help those of you that have been assigned to do so, come and help us. Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, gathered the disciples together and shared a last meal with them. He instructed them to eat and drink and that when they ate and drank, they wouldn't do it because they were hungry. They wouldn't do it because they were thirsty. They wouldn't do it because of a celebration or a party, but they would do it so that they could recognize that they were, they were that he was giving them uh, of his body, not actually, but giving them symbolically of his body and of his blood so that when they thought about it later, they would think about what he was preparing to do. He says to them and he says to us, do this in remembrance of me. So today as we prepare, prepare to partake of this communion, let's do that. Let's remember the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, and remember him. Now, here at Bethel Hope, we, we invite everyone who is a believer. You don't have to be a member of Bethel Hope or Bethel at all to partake. But we do ask that you are a believer. And if you are, then you're welcome to join us in this Lord's Supper. Let me pray before we pass it out. Lord, we thank you for your body, your blood, for your sacrifice that you gave for us so long ago on Calvary. We do this now in remembrance of you. Thank you in Jesus' name.